question for you kids. <laughs> You're on the ball this morning. That's good. What is the nicest thing that you could do for somebody else? If you wanted to show somebody love, what was the best thing you could do for them? Yeah. Help a lady cross the road. Okay. That's good. Any other? Any? What's that? Do them a favor. Yeah. Give them a hug. Okay. That's nice. Yes, there's, uh, there's lots of ways that we can show other people that we love them. But today in our passage, Jesus is going to tell us about how we should love one another and how, uh, what pattern to follow. And it's harder than you might think. It's not actually just as easy as doing somebody a favor or giving them a hug or helping them cross the road. But it includes those things. We're going to be talking about love this morning. And so, kids, if you want to uh, follow along, then maybe you, you might want to count how many times I use the word love, starting now. See how many times I use that word, love. We're working our way through the Gospel of John. You know, this is a book that's a, it's a record. Remember, the Bible is a compendium of different individual books. And one of those books in the Bible is John. And so we're working our way through this book. And the reason it's called John is because it's John's record of Jesus' life. We've been working our way through piece by piece. And John wrote this for a special reason. He wrote this book so that you can believe in Jesus and find eternal life. This is not just an interesting account of a historical figure. This is a book that John has written to help you find eternal life. That's an important, that's a lofty goal. I don't know about you, but um, all the books that you can find on the bookshelves at the bookshop or in the library, um, the, the, the goals of those books is not as lofty as the goal that John has in writing this book. This is the most important reason that somebody could write. Now, we're fast approaching the climax of our story, and we have the ominous clouds of conflict hanging on the horizon in our story. But while that's happening, Jesus is having a last-minute intensive with his disciples. They've been in the school of discipleship with Jesus for about three years, but that time is coming to an end. In these last hours of Jesus' life on earth, John records several teaching opportunities that Jesus takes to instruct his disciples. And in particular, these lessons seem to highlight how they are to live as his disciples when he's not with them in body. Because Jesus is going away. So how are they going to, what, what happens? Is this the, you know, if, if you are following somebody who is your great leader and teacher and you're on a program with them and if they die, the question then becomes, well, what do we do next? If, if, if you are focused on this leader and the ministry revolves around them and they die, well, what happens next? Well, in earthly terms, we, we shouldn't be focused on one person to the, to the ex, um, exclusion of others, except for Jesus. But the question remains, if Jesus is here in his body and he's been teaching them and leading them, and then he dies, what comes next? Well, Jesus is saying, the plan hasn't been destroyed. The plan keeps going on. You keep going on as my disciples, even when I leave. And he's teaching them what that looks like. Last time, that was an example of humility. As the creator of the universe, he stooped to wash the grime from their feet like a slave. 
And he calls his disciples to follow that example, stooping low to humbly serve and love one another. I just said the word again. Now the theme of love continues. But as John records Jesus' teaching on love, it, this teaching is now put in stark contrast to of two examples of the opposite, two examples of betrayal. So we're going to have two examples of betrayal with Jesus' command to love in the middle. So there's going to be three sections that we're looking at in our passage. And I've drawn three applications to go with that uh, with this passage, with each part of the passage. So if you're keeping notes, you can jot, make space for three points. This first application is that Jesus knows your betrayal. Jesus knows your betrayal. This is the, the first application that we need to hear from this text. You see, Jesus knows everything. He knows your heart. He knows your future actions and your past that you wish nobody knew about. Nothing is hidden from God. But let's see how this comes out of the passage. If, uh, if John was be a modern writing student, he would probably get wrapped over the knuckles for uh, giving away the ending of the story before it happens. But he's not a modern writer. He's an ancient writer. And so whenever it came up, whenever it was important in the story, he would, he would give away parts of the ending. We've been hearing that there is going to be somebody who betrays Jesus. In John chapter 6, John has already tipped us off to the fact that one of the 12 was going to betray Jesus. And in the previous passage that we read, that we were looking at last week, we also got more detail. Uh, it said, The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And it also said, uh, Jesus said, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. So Jesus knew that there was one of his disciples that was going to betray him. And not just that there was one of the 12 was a contender, but he knew who that person was. He knew what was going to happen. He knew that Judas was going to betray him from the start. And yet Jesus still invited him in as one of his 12. Jesus still served him. Presumably Jesus had just washed Judas's feet, the one who would betray him. Judas traveled with the disciples. He saw the great miracles. He would have had amazing experiences living at Jesus' side. Yet Judas would betray Jesus and reject his master for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus knew what was coming, including the weightiness of the task that was ahead of him. And that's what happens from verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss as to know which one of them he meant. So you see here, Jesus starts by saying, very truly. He, Jesus says this when there's something really important. All of God's word is important. But the fact when, he's, when he says very truly, or literally truly, truly, it's highlighting, hey, pay attention to this. One of you is going to betray me. And so how do the disciples respond to this news? You would think that maybe there were some tips that something had tipped them off and that they might know, oh, that, that disciple's a bit shady. He's probably the one. But you see here, they don't know who it is. 
Judas was like the rest of them in the way that he lived and acted and was part of the group. But he was a wolf in sheep's clothing, so to speak. But they respond appropriately going, well, who could it be? And one of the other Gospels gives us the uh, interesting detail that they even ask Jesus, is it me, Lord? They understood, <laughs> they understood their own weakness. They feared that they might be the one to betray Jesus. They weren't so proud as to think that they would never be the one. But Peter, Peter ever on the front foot, wants to know, who is it? Who is it, Jesus? Please tell us. So he gets John's attention because John's sitting next to Jesus. He gets John's attention. Ask Jesus who it is. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. And leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. And so this is, this has, John gets this, uh, this name that's not a name. It's almost like John doesn't want to draw attention to himself by putting himself in the story. So he kind of refers to himself in the third person, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He'll use this language a couple more times in John. But so John's right there leaning against Jesus. You know, they're, they're hanging out there. They're sharing this meal together. John's the one sitting right there with Jesus. And Peter's saying, you know, ask Jesus, who is it? And so he's probably doing this, you know, privately, not so that everybody at the table can hear. They're probably, so Jesus, you know, says to John, you know, the one whom I, I give after I dip this piece of bread. So Jesus gives this setup to signal who the betrayer is. He dips the bread, gives it to Judas. It's an uh, act of hospitality, you know, dipping the bread for him. It's like passing the plate or, uh, um, you know, pouring a drink for somebody at a meal. It's a, it's a sign of honour or I'm going to I'm serve you, I'm going to help you at the table. But this passage, Jesus doing this literally fulfils a bit of a psalm that we looked at last week. You might remember it came up, Psalm uh, 41 verse 9. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So this is a literal fulfillment. It's a, it's a symbolic meaning, but we see here also this literal fulfillment of the one who ate Jesus' bread is the one who would uh, betray him. But the symbology here is powerful because in Psalm 41, we have King David, the anointed king, who's talking about his his close friends who are rebelling against him. And that's what we have here. We have the anointed King Jesus, the King of the universe, with somebody whom he has loved and served and, and blessed, who has eaten from his table, is the one who turns against him. Jesus, Judas is going to reject all that Jesus has for him. Now, we already know that uh, the devil had put into Judas's heart the idea to betray Jesus, Judas had basically already decided to do it, but now in the moment when Judas takes the bread from Jesus, it's as if the possession has been possessed by Satan. He's been fully taken over. Satan entered him. He was abandoned to that path that he had chosen. Because after all, Judas was responsible and accountable. He was not a victim in this story. 
He was not just at the whims of the spiritual forces. He was, an, and he was somebody who was actively part of doing this. It was his choice, even though it was God's plan and design to have Judas betray Jesus through the influence of Satan. You see, Satan thought he had a spy on the inner inside. He thought that he had the, he had the, the inside line. He thought he was going to spring a trap and take Jesus out. He thought that he had the upper hand. All the while, Satan was actually helping Jesus fulfill God's plan through Judas. I think that, this is just a personal opinion, but I think that Judas has cottoned on to the fact that Jesus knows that he's going to betray him. Because Jesus has just announced, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. And then I think Judas has kind of figured out, Jesus, Jesus knows, and that's why he leaves, essentially, straight away. But that's just my, that's just me uh, think, reading that and, and seeing how the story is unfolding. Now he runs off to spring the trap before it's too late. But we see that the rest of the people there, they didn't understand what was going on. No one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Jesus had take, Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. So nobody else is catching the true meaning of what Jesus is saying. What you have to do, do quickly. They thought that perhaps he was going to give money to the poor. This probably was a pattern of because he had the money bags, he had to go and uh, he had to go and do buy the stuff that they needed. He had to go uh, and, and give donations to the poor at times. So they thought maybe that's what he meant when he told them to go and do it quickly. I don't think the disciples there at that table realized just how close things were to coming to a head. That in only a few hours more hours time and nothing would ever be the same for them again but let's come back to the application that we're looking at here the application is that jesus knows your betrayal jesus knew judas's betrayal and as we see later on in this passage with peter's upcoming denial of jesus jesus knew peter's betrayal jesus god himself knows your heart god knows your betrayals because nothing is hidden from God. He knows your most intimate thoughts. He's not surprised by what he finds there. He's not surprised by what you have done or even the failures that you will have in the future. These failures are a betrayal of God. It is our failure to trust him and we substitute our own will for God's will. It's a betrayal. It's undermining his leadership and his authority over all creation and saying, no, I'm going to impose my leadership over the world. It is rejecting God's good design for our lives and choosing death. We are all guilty of betraying the Lord. Now, as far as I know, none of us have betrayed Jesus for money, but... The fact is that with sin in our lives, that's where all of us can end up. It starts with scooping a little off the top of the money bag and it ends up in taking bribes. It starts with being ashamed of Christ in the workplace and ends up with a rejection of Christ altogether because it was too uncomfortable. Your guilty pleasures, your white lies are not harmless. 
It's playing with matches in a dry forest. One minute you're in control of a little fire and thinking, oh, this isn't so bad. And the next it's a raging blaze that a hundred fire trucks can't put out. Sin is deceptive. It starts small and it grows as we feed it. We've seen the pattern up here in Judas's life and with sin in our own lives, that is the track that we are all on. So knowing that we are all sinners and we've all sinned against Jesus, what do we do next? What do we do in light of our betrayal? Well, we actually have two examples in Judas and Peter, these guys who both betrayed Jesus. One of them betrayed Jesus, regretted it, but then ran away. He betrayed Jesus, he got the money, and then he realized what he'd done. He gave the money back, or tried to give the money back, but he didn't turn back to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. He ran away, and he offed himself. He ran away and literally just ran off to death. He ran away from the source of life. But that is not the way that that we should go. That is a way of despair. That is hopelessness. That is the way to death, to try and deal with our betrayal on our own terms and to... We can't make up for it. But the way to life is the way that Peter went. Even though he denied the Lord three times, he repented. Even though he denied the Lord when it was uncomfortable... He came back to Jesus and sought Jesus and sought to serve Jesus. He came back and found rest and life with Jesus. He found life in God's mercy. That is the only way that any of us can find life, is that is to turn to Jesus and to seek him, even though we have rebelled against him, even though we have betrayed him. You see, Jesus laid down his life to redeem us from our betrayal to redeem us from the consequences we deserve. We should all be convicted of treason and imprisoned. Yet God loved us by sending his son to die for us and set us free from sin. He loved us. And that is the next application, that we should love one another. We should love one another just as Jesus loved us. This is in stark opposition to these two betrayals, a betrayal of of the Lord for money. And now Jesus commands love, an active love that should characterize his disciples. And like always, Jesus is the example of that love. Let's have a look at what it says. When he was gone, that's when Judas was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. So after, uh, this seems like a little detail, but it will play into the the unfolding of the story in in future passages. But it's worth remembering that now Judas has left, and the trap is ready to be sprung. It's, it's like it's looming over what happens in the following chapters. Judas has left the 12 disciples. They're at this Passover meal, uh, still together. Jesus is teaching them. But it's got the looming 
question of when the betrayal will take fruition, when the trap will be sprung. And so even though Jesus is being betrayed and his arrest and torture and death are quite imminent, he says, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. This, Jesus is coming to this fruition of the hour, the time that he has been waiting for and working towards, the time when Jesus is glorified. This, this time is a time of glorification. It's not a time of shame. And in Jesus' glorification, all of God is glorified. The Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Now, it's always a little bit uh, uncomfortable when we're talking, when Jesus is talking about God as if he's not God. But, you know, put yourself in the shoes of the God men trying to communicate how this all works to mere humans. And so some of the language can feel a little bit, uh, a little bit um, uncomfortable, but you can see how Jesus is trying to explain to them how this is going to work. How does the God man in flesh fit with God the Father? Well, this Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. This is, uh, this is God working in and through this Messiah to bring glory to God. You see, God's not, uh, Jesus is not making the best of a bad situation. He is doing, he's doing the plan. He's on track. He's on mission. And this plan is for God's glory. God works all things together for the good of those who are called. Most of the all, the most awful things and painful trials are somehow part of the revelation of God's glory. And we can't always see the specifics in the midst of it, but eventually the truth will be revealed, just as it was with Jesus. It was for the glory of God that he was betrayed and would be executed on a cross. And so Jesus drops this truth bomb to, to remind them, to teach them these things so that they don't lose hope when he is soon arrested. God is glorified in him. God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. We have the Godhead working together for the glory of God. And the work of Jesus as a man on earth is intimately connected with that will and glory of God. Because the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, they're all on track together. They're all, they all love each other. They're all serving each other. The three parts of one God, three persons in one God, when you see Jesus at work, you see the Father at work. When you see the love of Christ, you see the Father's love. When you see Jesus on mission, you see him doing what God the Father wants him to do, the plan. When you hear Jesus speak, you are hearing the words of God the Father. They are all together working for their glory. And in working for the, God, the glory of God, he's working for our good as well. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God like the water covers the sea. This glory will be revealed in the great act of love that Jesus will soon undertake, this high point of his earthly ministry. And this means that Jesus will be going away soon. He will depart from being bodily among them. They'll be left behind for a time. And they can't come with him to that atoning work of salvation. But he wants his followers to mimic his act of love. Even though it's not for them to die for the sins of the world, it is still for them to die to Christ, for Christ. It is still to them to die to themselves and to live in Christ. It's still for them to die to one another, to serve others in love. He says, a new command I give you. 
Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Somebody should make a song out of that. If you read John's letters uh, to the church, you know, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, this would probably sound familiar. This is the same kind of language that John uses where he talks about the way that we're meant to love one another as Christ has loved us. The followers of Jesus are called to love one another completely. And it's not a mere suggestion, a new command I give to you. I think we kind of shirk away from <laughs> commands. We don't want to have these burdens, uh, this, this structure to, to pull us into line. We, don't, we kind of uh, chomp at the bit, so to speak. But this is a good command for our good, for God's glory, that we should love one another. It's not a mere suggestion. And you'll see how this flowed out of God's Old Testament law, as we read in Leviticus earlier. This is what God wants for His people, to love one another, to serve one another, to make a way to help the poor and the oppressed by leaving the grapes in the, the leftover grapes in the vineyard, by not lying to one another and making uh, false promises. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what God has always wanted for His people. But what does this look like? There are examples all across the Bible, but it means laying down our life for one another, humbling ourselves towards one another, putting away the headstrong and prideful ways and being willing to forego our own rights and desires for the sake of others, as Jesus did. He gave up the right that he had to sit enthroned in the courts of heaven and receive the praise and glory and honor of the angels, and he entered into the world. He, he did that out of love. He sets the example. He sets the precedent that we follow. But throughout the Bible, you'll see other patterns of what that love looks like. When Paul is writing to the church, particularly in the, the church of the Corinthians, he talks about how they need to put aside their own passions and desires and even things that they have a, a right, a, a, a godly, um, they have a, God lets them do something in freedom. They've got Christian freedom to do all of this stuff. And he says, but in love, we need to love one another, and that might mean putting aside some of those things that we have in Christian freedom. The examples of, for instance, uh, eating food sacrificed to idols is probably one that Paul points out particularly, even though he says, you know, meat's meat, and, you know, you can eat it to the glory of God. There were some Christians who really struggled with that, and so he would say, for the sake of them, don't eat the meat with, when you're with them. And the same can go for things like alcohol. There might be those who struggle with alcohol or who, or who think falsely, but who think that Christians shouldn't drink alcohol, but we can go along in love and we can put aside that and say, okay, I know that I have the freedom under Christ to do this thing, but in these circumstances, in this situation, I'm going to put aside that right for the sake of loving my brothers and sisters. It means sacrificing time and love uh, to serve and help others. It means living in community with other Christians who are difficult to get along with, even loving our enemies. It means forgiving those who sin against you. It means spending time, money and resources on others. It means putting your life on the line to defend and protect others. We cannot have love for another, one another if we isolate ourselves off from God's people or keep our distance. One of the 
challenges that we face when we think, yes, okay, well, I've got all of this before me, all these loves to do. I've got all of this uh, work of the Lord to love and to serve others, and there's only so much I can do. And one of the things that we might be tempted to do is to cut things off and say, okay, I've only got time for this, let's say, using the language of time. I've only got this much time, and so I'm going to cut off these good things. But I think a better way to think about it would be to say, we need rightly ordered loves. So we need to prioritize, so to speak. God, we serve Him, we love God, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. And under loving our neighbor as ourselves, we start with those who we are most obligated to love, those who are closest to us. Our, if we're married, our spouse and our children. But then that love, we should love those around us, your extended family and your church family. But I would caution you from trying going to say, well, I'm just going to love my family to the exclusion of showing love to those around me. Because let's face it, there's a lot of hard work that goes into loving those closest to you. But what we don't want is to exclude people. We want to say, well, how can we love those around us as a family? How can you order your love so that you can love those around you and show the world what it looks like to be the disciples of Jesus Christ? So that little encouragement, just to summarize what I was saying, is make serving others and showing love to others a family activity so that you don't have to kind of choose between being loving and spending time with your family and loving others. Make it a family activity. One of the things that you might get confused about here is that Jesus says a new command. And as we read in Exodus and as Jesus talks about, it doesn't seem all that new. And so I think... uh, we might say that it's renewed, like it's a refreshing, it's a re-establishment, a, restate, a new stating of this ancient command that was at the center of the old covenant law. Jesus summarized that the two greatest commandments were to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is the ultimate example of that. And he demands his people follow this pattern. It will be an, an identifying mark How will you be able to tell who Jesus' true disciples are? Well, because they will have love one for another. It will be attractive. Now, this doesn't uh, put aside the need to proclaim the gospel itself. Some people think, oh, we'll just be nice and love one another, and then people just be attracted to that and become Christians. No, we need both. We need the message of the gospel that goes with the lived-out actions that match what we say. We are to love one another. And it'd be a marker of what it looks like to follow Jesus. By this we know love, that Jesus, he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Peter thinks that he can do it. Peter is quick to jump in and he thinks, yes, I can do that. I can lay down my life for Jesus. But he's actually making empty promises, which leads us to our final application. Jesus knows your empty promises. Jesus knows your empty promises. Peter tries to express his love with words, doing basically what we've just been talking about not doing. (laughs) He's doing something in word but not in deed. He has the words but not the action to back it up. At least not now. Later on in his life, he will follow through. But at this time in his life, 
he's just got he's just full of hot air he tries to express love with words while jesus knows that those words of love are empty because they're not backed up he says simon peter asked him lord where are you going jesus replied where i'm going you cannot follow but you will follow later peter asked lord why can't i follow you now i will lay down my life for you so Peter's picking up on the fact that Jesus is going away. He doesn't understand. How come you're going away? Why, not, can't, why can't I come with you? He says, look, I'm going to make the ultimate sacrifice for you. I'm ready to do it. But the great irony is, first, that actually, no, Jesus is the one who's about to make the great sacrifice on Peter's for Peter. It's going to be the other way around. He, Jesus is going to lay down his life for Peter. But then, as we know, that Peter will fail at the first test. He's never going to get near dying for Jesus because he can't even say to a servant girl, yes, I'm connected with Jesus in some way as a disciple. He will fall, he'll falter at the first step. And even just in case we're tempted to think, oh, this was a one-time deal, he does it three times in one night. So Jesus shows beforehand that he knows the emptiness of Peter's promise. Jesus knows the emptiness of our own words better than we do ourselves, And this leaves Peter in a position of being separated from Jesus because he has turned his back on Jesus. He's walking away from Jesus. But unlike Judas, who tries to take care of it himself, Peter turns back to Christ. He would be repentant. And so the application here, being that Jesus knows your empty promises, should lead us to go... But there's no point in lying to God. I can, be, I can be truthful with God. I don't need to feel a certain way or say certain words to talk to God, make empty promises to God about all the wonderful things I'm going to do. God knows better than I do. So when you seek Him in prayer, when you sing to Him, don't, sing, don't make empty promises. It's better to be truthful even when it's uncomfortable. But beyond that, it also means that we're truthful to one another. We don't lie to one another. We don't make promises and then don't follow through. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If we make promises that we can't actually keep, then we end up shooting ourselves in the foot. And there's some great examples of that, like Jephthah, the judge, who um, promises to sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his house when he gets back from battle. And there's some other um, rash vows. Saul promises to kill the first guy who eats a meal before they win a battle and it ends up being his own son. Like, it, those are probably a bit outlandish examples, but the, but the point still remains. We, we don't make promises that we can't keep. We don't make rash vows, as the scripture puts it sometimes. So what? Through this passage, we've seen these two examples of betrayal in stark contrast to the command that Jesus has to love. Jesus knows your betrayal. He knows your sin. But Jesus laid down his life to save you from your sin. And he will redeem you if you will turn to him and seek him, believe and trust in him. He did that out of love for you. And now as those people who belong to Jesus, we're called to follow his example of what he did in love by loving one another. Love one another as Christ has loved us. And as part of being loving, that means not making empty promises, not lying, 
not betraying one another. I hope that these words will be an encouragement to us as disciples who are still in the same shoes that these disciples would soon be, disciples who are living out our faith while Jesus is not here bodily. Let's seek him in prayer and ask him to enable us to do this very lofty task. Heavenly Father, we thank you that for the love that you have shown us through Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to love one another as Christ has loved us, to lay down our lives for one another, to serve one another, to uh, care for one another. Lord, we pray that you would keep us from making empty promises like Peter, from, from essentially lying to those around us and making rash vows. We pray, Lord, that you'd keep us from the betrayal of uh, just doing what's expedient in the moment. Lord, help us to remain faithful to you. And we thank you, Lord, that through the death of Jesus Christ, we could see your glory being revealed. Please, Lord, capture our hearts with that glory so that we might serve you faithfully all the days of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.